Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Tonight's event is co-sponsored by the Carsey Wolf Center's Environmental Media Initiative. The Environmental Media Initiative uh, is one of our main areas of programming at the center. And it's programming that encompasses uh, teaching, research, and uh, public programming. Uh, such as the event here tonight. Uh, Our environmental media initiative emerged from the recognition that there is no other UC campus and uh, no other campus anywhere that has such exceptional strengths in media and communication studies on the one hand and environmental sciences uh, on the other. so the, uh, this initiative brings together researchers from across UC Santa Barbara who are exploring all the ways that uh, media and the environment influence each other, inhabit each other, structure each other. Uh, for teaching, I just want to mention uh, that this past June, uh, the Carsey Wolf Center uh, uh, partnered with uh, the Marine Science Institute, the Department of Evolution, Ecology, and Marine Biology, Uh, and Michael Hanrahan of the Ocean Channel uh, to launch the Blue Horizon Summer Program for Environmental Media. Uh, This uh, nine-week program brought together students from the uh, sciences, uh, uh, social sciences, humanities, uh, biological sciences, uh, to create short, compelling films uh, on important issues affecting the Earth's oceans. And starting in the spring, uh, summer sessions will be accepting applications from prospective students uh, for our uh, this summer 08 offering of Blue Horizons. It was a big success last year, and we're very much looking forward to it. One last uh, just little announcement before we start. Uh, on February 26th, the Environmental Media Initiative will sponsor a public lecture by Leo Kay, who is the communications director for the California Air Resources Board and Governor Schwarzenegger's point person on the fight against uh, climate change. This is a free lecture. Uh, Go look on our website uh, for uh, all of our activities around the Environmental Media Initiative. Okay, so let's get going. So, uh, Shelley, you you want Gary to go ahead and speak or follow up on? Um, Is this on? At the risk of being too subversive, our, our programs really started after the Integrated Waste Management Board passed a landmark uh, legislation called AB 939. This was in 1989. And that really got all of the cities within the state of California to look at their, their waste uh, practices and what they were sending to landfills. And then the cities started to look at their commercial sector, the studios being in, in that sector, uh, to reduce our waste. So that's how we started. And I thought maybe, Gary, you want to kind of lay out the legislative um, landscape in the state, and then we can okay, ensue. I, I'd be happy okay? to. Okay, great. I'm the government, and I'm here to help you. Okay. So um, I go way back in the environmental movement, some 35 years this gray hair really counts. Anyway, uh, what I'd like to do is just frame some of this for you so you understand how this all got started. Um, 30 years ago, uh, or 35 years ago, I started a company in Los Angeles called the Call Hall Recycling, which you heard about earlier. And we started developing recycling programs for communities. We, went out, we, went, we listened to people tell us what they wanted to do. I want to recycle at my office. We did office programs. We did... 
I want to pick it up at the curb. We did that. We did buyback centers and drop-off centers. And as we started to roll these programs out in Los Angeles, I was contacted by some of the people in the entertainment industry. Especially, well, the first, the first group, that call, or the company that called us was Disney. And they were saying, well, you know, we have all these scripts. Do you think we should recycle them? And I'm going, what? <laughs> of course you should recycle them. And uh, so we went over, and the animation building was the first building we started on. And they said, well, we've got a few scripts. And I'm going, a few? Uh, we used to pull about eight tons every 10 days of scripts out, out of that one building and recycle them. So this goes way back with the entertainment industry. As we, as we developed the recycling industry in the, er, in the early 70s, in 1976, here in Santa Barbara, we had we, the California Resource Recovery Association had just been started. We started it. But we wrote a um, uh, California recycling policy. And that was the blueprint for what Shelley was just talking about, AB 939. Now, we're going to talk about AB, these are Assembly Bill 939. These, these are key legislative things that have happened to drive recycling, not only here in California, but they were the, the benchmark and the model for the rest of the country. And not only that, even in Europe. Of course, they went right by us after they figured out what we were doing. They went, so, um, but what we did is we, let, we, we set the pace for all of this. And in, we started in, in 1987, we did AB 2020, which is the refund act. It's the deposit on bottles and cans, which now is now 71% uh, recycling rate in the state of California. By the way, at 939, we are now at 52% in this state in recycling. We're far the, the best in the country at doing that. Uh, in 1988, we started a program at UCLA. It was the first in the country. Uh, they got an award for uh, the most innovative curriculum in the country. And it was the Recycling and Waste Management Program, of which Shelley was one of our, she was our A student. So when she talks to you, listen to her. She knows what she's talking about. And then um, another piece of legislation that we happened to pick on, or industry we picked on, was the newsprint industry. And in uh, 1989, we also passed AB 1360, which now all newspapers in the state of California have to have 60% recycled content. Why I'm giving you all this background, how it relates to the entertainment industry, is because the studios were uh, key, uh, when, and especially when Emma got started and Echo got started, which we'll talk about, it was a key thing to happen in the environmental movement. Us recyclers and environmentalists were all walking around bumping into each other, talking to ourselves, but we didn't have the tools and we didn't have the, the, the wherewithal to spread the word on the environment and what was really going on. So once the industry, your industry, this industry, got started, things really started to happen. So when Emma and Echo took off, the environmental movements really started to take off, and a lot of things started to, to come to happen. Um, the um, production companies, which we tried, we, and we did some stuff with the studios along the way, which they eventually took off by themselves. The production companies was another story. Uh, it, we didn't get a lot of traction in the early days. Uh, and you're going to hear, uh, there was a few leaders, but you're going to hear a little bit about this from Hart Bachner, who has really, uh, and pay attention to what he says, he knows what he's doing. Um, now, what this all gets to is the biggest issue, which is climate change, which we're facing today. Uh, AB 32, which is Assembly Bill 32, um, California's Global Warming Solutions Act of 2006 established the first in-the-world comprehensive program of regulatory and market 
mechanisms to achieve real quantifiable cost-effective reductions in greenhouse gases. Now, again, what, this is huge to us, and this is where the industry, the studios, the production companies, the entertainers, when they start talking about this stuff, then we get traction and a lot of things start to happen. So when you look at what you do and what Shelly will talk about, and Emma's doing this as well in the studios, is the source reduction recycling environmental procurement has huge effects on global warming and greenhouse gas. Um, recycling um, has twice the economic impact of disposal, creating five jobs for every 1,000 tons recycled compared to 2.5 jobs for landfilling. It's amazing. Resources are, and the resources are returned to economic mainstream to be used again. Recycling California already saves yearly enough energy to power 1.4 million homes and saves 14 million trees. So what's this all coming to in this session and what's going on in Sacramento? By the way, the Integrated Waste Management Board is the worst name in the whole wide world, and uh, we're getting ready to change that because nobody knows what it means. So, um, and that's who I work with right now. Anyway, um, so what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at mandatory commercial recycling in the state of California. We've done a great job at recycling. Everybody here recycles at home, right? Everybody? Raise your hand. Yeah, I, I love it. Okay. So now we're all going to recycle at the office, and that's what we're headed towards. We, we've had a lot of pushback trying to get commercial recycling started, uh, and that's why the leadership within this industry is key to getting people to pay attention. So... Um, with that, you're going to see legislation coming down uh, this year. There's a bill introduced for mandatory commercial recycling. What I really like to see is this industry step out in front and make sure this happens and show how it can be done. And uh, I think we will all be much better off. Anyway, thanks. It's really important to illustrate um, sort of the history of our program. We used to use AB 939 kind of as the, as the impetus, even though we knew that as a studio we're, we didn't have to comply. It was the cities that had to comply with the regulation. This really jump-started our program. But what made it take off was the economic benefit. Um, our, our recycling program, when it started in 1992, diverted about, recycled about 7% of our waste stream. And nowadays, we're close to 70%. And it, it saves the company about three hundred to $400,000, depending on landfill costs and fuel costs. But it saves us that much every year. So that really got the program going. And I think we can demonstrate to commercial entities everywhere that it makes good business sense. When you make a good environmental choice, a good environmental decision, or good environmental policy, it usually is synonymous with good economic policy or a good economic choice. So our program started with recycling and grew to procurement, how we spend our money, what kind of copy paper are we buying, what's our letterhead printed on, what janitorial supplies are we using, cleaning supplies. And nowadays, it's, it's been more than a decade that we use copy paper that has 30, now it's actually 35% post-consumer content across the board. Our stationery, our letterhead, our business cards, memo paper is 100% post-consumer paper and not non-chlorine bleached. 
And all of these decisions really push the market. It used to be 15 years ago when we wrote the environmental specifications for our vendors, they would say, these products don't exist or they don't work well or we kept asking. And I always say that to businesses that are embarking on a greening program. I say, ask for it, even if you know that it doesn't exist yet or the service or the, you know, the product hasn't been completely um, uh, finished, ask for it anyway. The more that businesses ask, the more it'll, it'll become available. Nowadays, recycled content paper is easy to get. Remanufactured toner cartridges, uh, re-refined oil, plastic lumber, all of these things that used to be so hard to get are now readily available. Um, we, we then grew the program into energy efficiency. And when we started, we didn't really know that we were addressing climate change. But now we know that all of those investments from the early 90s have paid back in spades, not only financially, but have gotten us well on our way to meeting the targets of Assembly Bill 32. So we're way ahead of the regulation. Business loves to be there. Business doesn't necessarily like to be um, regulated, although some of us, uh, the rebels in, in the crowd, do say, bring it on, Gary, bring us more legislation. But businesses typically like to be ahead of the legislation, and being an environmental steward really puts you in a very good place. Um, the green building that you heard mentioned in the documentary is um, really a, a, a jewel in our crown. It's a 56,000-square-foot office building that we owned, and we completely remodeled it. And I remember walking through the building before the remodel, and it was kind of dark and dingy. It was uh, a Warner Electra Atlantic Records um, building. Ceilings were low, and it kind of felt like, you know, just a standard old building. After the remodel, um, and we, we took it through the lead um, rating system, which some of you may be familiar with. This is really a, a national, international now um, rating system for green building design and construction. So from the demolition and all the materials that were recycled, about 90% of the materials were recycled from the building, to every decision that was made, the adhesives below the carpets, the carpet itself, the furniture is all Green Guard certified, uh, the flooring is linoleum, uh, not, not standard linoleum, but it's uh, made from linseed oil and cork, it's uh, called marmoleum. Every single decision in the building uh, was made for the highest green standards. But what you have today walking into that building is this beautiful open space with an incredible amount of sunlight, uh, daylight, fresh air, clean air, good indoor air quality. And what the tenants tell us is this is a really comfortable building to be in. It feels healthy to be in. And this, again, is a good... Um, indicator of making a good environmental choice that results in a good fiscal choice. Our employees are happier, our utility costs are a lot lower, but you end up with a high-performing uh, building that is going to last for a very, very long time. Uh, the solar project, some people really still are skeptical about the economics of photovoltaics. But we believe very strongly, as you heard our chairman say and our COO say, 
that we believe it's a long-term investment and that we have a responsibility in pushing the market and in promoting renewable energy and showing the fact that a Warner Brothers can make a difference in terms of promoting renewable energy. Um, so all in all, I want to say that we have an incredible team of, of um, employees who voluntarily participate. Uh, we have what are called eco-ambassadors throughout the company. These are people, m many of you are probably just like them, who recycle at home, who care about our environment, who really want to integrate that, those choices into their lifestyle. Uh, we also have several divisions that have formed their own environmental task forces. Our Warner Home Video Division uh, formed such a task force about a year ago, and they've started to change all the packaging choices uh, that they make for DVDs. So, for example, last year, all of our DVDs uh, went to a recycled content wrap, and uh, for some of the titles, we've completely eliminated the plastic tray so that it's a completely petroleum-free product. And this is really taking off. Uh, now we're hearing from the, the production companies that make movies. For example, uh, the 11th hour is kind of an obvious one, but they really wanted to make sure that the packaging is right. Um, but Darfur now, they said, we don't want any petroleum in the packaging. We want it to be the best sustainable packaging ever. Um, I'll also mention that we've done some carbon offsets. I know that that's a subject that you've probably heard of uh, for our films. And we don't do this across the board. It's select films. But we realize that there's actually a much greater opportunity with the films to look at the footprint. And by the virtue of starting to measure the footprint, the environmental impact of a film, we're starting to reduce it. Um, so the 11th hour, actually our first uh, film that was offset was um, uh, Syriana. And that carbon footprint for the film was about 2,000 uh, tons of greenhouse gas emissions. The 11th hour, by contrast, did so much to reduce its impact that its final footprint was 600 tons. Huge difference, less than a third. So we still offset that with... Um, carbon offsets with a, we made an investment with a wind company in India, but we realize there's much more to be done on the ground. Uh, one more thing that I want to tell you, because I'm probably out of time, one of the really interesting um, elements or programs that it has grown out of the initiatives is a donation program that's called Encore, a Community Reuse Partnership, and essentially we donate uh, anything from furniture, to outdated computers, to office supplies, paint, uh, leftover food on a daily basis, to nonprofit organizations, to schools. And we're not giving them, you know, garbage. We're giving them really good materials that we just don't have a use for anymore. Um, and interestingly, this has also now entered into the production arena where films are donating materials. So last year, for example, we had, um, this actually started with the first film, Ocean's Eleven, and uh, we donated a lot of materials to the NRDC building in Santa Monica and to the resource center, gas company resource center in, in Downey. Then Ocean's Twelve did the same thing, and now Ocean's Thirteen built this huge casino on one of our stages, and we thought, 
what in the world are we going to do with these kinds of materials? You can't put that in a school or a little you know, community theater. This was a huge three-story mega structure. And we entered into a partnership with the L.A. Community College District, which is building, I forget the number, but they're building a lot of new facilities. And they've actually put through an ordinance to make sure that all the buildings are going to be LEED certified. And they are going to integrate these materials into the design of new buildings. I mean, just a fantastic story. Um, and the, the donation stories, I could be here for hours, but I'll tell you one last one that, that looks like it may be happening. Um, we are about to demolish a, an old grip building that was built in the 30s to make room for a new sound stage, a new feature stage. This building was built um, with very old, well, then it was new, but now it's very old um, dimensions of Douglas fir, huge, huge dimensions, like 20, 30-foot runs, and you can't get that kind of timber anymore. Those big trees don't exist anymore. So we had the demolition contractors come and said, we said to them, you know, we're very conscientious about demolition. What are you going to do with these materials when you take down the building? He said, well, we'll recycle the metal and we'll take the wood down to Mexico. And we said, whoa, is that the best you can do with these incredible timbers? And they said, well, you know, it's not much else. So we started thinking about what can we do with this old wood? And uh, my colleague, Mike, who actually presented here last year, said, furniture. And he contacted a furniture designer She's from China. She originally started her business by utilizing old wood from old temples and uh, buildings that were coming down. And she's going to design furniture out of this old, you know, 70-year-old Douglas fir from the old grip building. So great stories, great, great activities to be had on the studio. Thank you. Sorry I took a little longer. Well, Shelley, thanks so much. Okay, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing with us uh, Warner Brothers' pioneering efforts here. And now we'll hear from John Corcoran, who's going to talk about what Sony's doing. On? Good. So uh, the good news is Shelley explained all the technical terms, and so now I don't have to go through it. So it makes my uh, talk a little shorter. Uh, and if you thought that uh, the studios are so competitive at the box office, um, we're also pretty competitive when it comes to environmental initiatives. Um, but, but as you've heard, and, and Gary will attest to, uh, Shelley drives the Cadillac. Uh, the programs uh, that she's developed are fantastic and, and are leading the way, although our photovoltaic system that uh, is going to be turned on tomorrow is about twice the size of hers. <laughs> she she drives before Prius, we triple ours. So anyway, um, just to talk a little bit about Sony Pictures, uh, I'd like to start with uh, mentioning Sony Corporation and their commitment to the environment um, goes back quite a long ways. Uh, we're currently working under a program we call GM 2010, which is Green Management 2010. Uh, Sony Corporation has set a number of targets uh, for all of its uh, companies to, to try and meet related to environmental sustainability, preventing global warming, uh, reducing energy consumption, uh, et cetera. 
In fact, Sony Electronics also leads their industry for uh, manufacturing. Um, Gary may be aware of Waste Management's new partnership with Sony Electronics, which has just established a take-back recycling program. Uh, any Sony product can be brought into one of these facilities, which in uh, a short time there will be uh, within 20 miles of 95% of the U.S. population will be these facilities. You can take back any Sony product and have it recycled for free. Uh, Sony Electronics is also has a trade-up program, so if you uh, take your old television and you bring it into one of these facilities, you can also get uh, coupons to purchase a new Sony television. Uh, and you're probably aware of the new technology, which is also environmentally friendly. Uh, they consider the environmental impacts in your manufacturing uh, and all their technological design. Additionally, Sony Music um, is working under the GM 2010, and they're working quite diligently on uh, making more eco-friendly packaging, as is Sony PlayStation and our home entertainment division uh, with our DVD sales. So, uh, turn my notes over. Uh, Sony Pictures Entertainment, uh, back in 1991, started a partnership with the Tree People uh, in Los Angeles, where we now train our employees to uh, become citizen foresters. And once they are trained, they're able to go out anywhere in Los Angeles and re recommend the planting of trees, which Sony Pictures and the tree people will fund the planting of those trees. So that program's been going on since 1991 and continues to this day. So, you know, with the... Um, the input of the EMA and ECO and some of the other studios driving this now, you know, our environmental efforts also started quite a long time ago. In 2001, Sony Pictures became the first ISO 14001 certified studio, and we continue to be the only studio that is ISO 14001 certified. And for those of you who don't know what that is, that's an international standard for environmental management systems, and it requires us to um, set targets and monitor continuous improvement uh, and be audited on an annual basis by a third-party auditing um, company. A number of other projects. I mentioned our photovoltaic project, which will be online tomorrow. <clears throat> it's 192 kilowatts. We also are in the middle of um, construction of our own LEED certified building. So we're, uh, we're currently working on that. And we also are putting in a new central plant, which will provide us with uh, much more efficient energy consumption uh, over the next couple of years. We, uh, we're working on green energy, uh, purchasing of green energy. Our IT backup site in Chandler, Arizona, is now purchased 100% um, green energy. So that's how that facility is maintained and run. Um, we also have a green procurement program that uh, you've heard quite a bit about, and it is advantageous to not only our, our studio, uh, but to the suppliers uh, and to the environment. In 2007, we recycled, and I think this is an astronomical number, 54 tons of electronic waste. We 
maintain about a 65, an average of 65% recycling rate for solid waste. <clears throat> Excuse me. And in 2006, we had donated over 26 tons of uh, furniture and set pieces to Habitat for Humanity. We have um, employee programs where we also plant trees. We um, do beach cleanup days, etc. So we are trying to get our employees involved. Many of them have a passion for this as much as we do, and and it's good. To, <coughs> excuse me. It's good to get their passion and the businesses working together um, and driving these programs. So really, what we're also up here talking about is productions, and how do we implement environmental initiatives into the productions? And I think what we'll all touch on at some point is. Um, there are some difficulties in doing that. We are different from a manufacturing facility. Each production is its unique beast. There are uh, anything from you know, sequences or, or scenes where we use a lot of water. Um, there are sequences or scenes where it's a night shoot and we don't, we're not required to use lights. There's, one of our movies recently was all shot in a, uh, in a night sequence. It all took place in one night in the rain. So the, there wasn't the use of that many lights. Uh, we did use a lot of water. But then on the other stage, we shot a uh, Hawaii scene for about 30 days. And, uh, I mean, you could get a sunburn. It was so bright in there and the, the lights that we were using. So we have to look at all of these productions in, in, in its individual and unique form and try and work with the individual productions and to reduce consumption, etc. Many of the studios have gotten together and um, developed our best, manage best management practices for environmental sustainability. And as we um, continue to work on that, we provide it to our productions, and many of them are taking it upon themselves to put these into place. We also offset um, two productions uh, in the past two years. But what we do is we do monitor and track the carbon footprint of each one of our productions so that we can maintain this data and do our best to show a, a reduction over the course of time. Another project we're currently working on with the New York City Mayor's Office of uh, Film, Theater, and Broadcasting, as well as Cornell University, is um, a biodiesel study on our next big feature that we're doing in New York City. We're going to be looking at the feasibility of using biodiesel in the generators that, that we uh, operate with each day. A couple of the new initiatives, uh, green biking program. Uh, if you've ever been to a studio lot, you know that we have tons of golf carts, and I think everybody believes they need to have one and drive it around. We're going to do our best to reduce the number of um, golf carts that are used on the lot and we're going to be asking our employees to donate old, old bicycles and then you know, label them all as the Green Bike Program. And I think many cities use it. Um, and they just pick up a bike and, and use that rather than taking the golf cart. We've also worked on uh, green premieres and greening our special events. Um, many of the talent now request um, hybrid cars rather than limos. We're doing our best to try and make that... Uh, more of the standard and the norm rather than the exception. And I think with the help of the rest of this panel and, and, and you all, uh, we'll see that down the road. So uh, I think that's all I have to talk to you about. Thank you, John.
Now, how did these big old movie studios turn out to be business leaders and pioneers in these environmental efforts? I think it might have to do with uh, some inspiration and cajoling that came from the Environmental Media Association. Cindy Horn, one of the co-founders of it, is going to tell us how that got started. And then uh, Debbie Levin is here, to, also from the Environmental Media Association, the president of it, uh, to talk to us about uh, the specific strategies uh, that you've adopted uh, to be able to have so much profound influence on the media industries. Well, I should start by saying <laughs> I spent the entire day with my daughter, Cassidy, uh, who's in the back back there, on the UCSB campus. And for all of you who are students, can, can I just see how many of you? I'm sure Cassidy agrees we haven't had a chance to speak yet about our day, but what a phenomenal place you have to work in and to learn in. And it's an honor to be a teeny little part of, uh, of, your, of your time here. So thank you for having all of us. Thank you. Now, Gary, I'm sorry, you do have the grayest hair. <laughs> he has been doing this the longest. Uh, I guess I've been doing it maybe the next longest. I'm not sure. I'd have to check with everybody. But... If you can imagine, if you're old enough, I don't think you are, to go back into the uh, late 80s. Norman Lear and Lynn Lear and Alan and I, my husband and I, I think you saw him on the, on the film, and Ted and Susie Field, who unfortunately are, are, um, are divorced and not with this group anymore. We, we miss them terribly. But we... Um, we're all sort of pregnant, not the men. We were also, the women were pregnant with our, with our children, first children. And we started seeing little things here and there about it wasn't quite safe to eat meat, beef. It wasn't really safe to eat chicken. We, it was just not on our radar screen at all. And then there was this article in the L.A. Times Mel Levine seeks $3 million to clean up the bay. Mel Levine was a congressman from our area and a friend. And so I thought, well, I better see what this is about. And I read that our bay was dirty. And I had no idea. And there was a, a line in there. It said, certain fish species are hazardous, hazardous for human consumption. And I thought, like, oh, Okay. I can't eat beef, I can't eat chicken, I can't eat fish. I mean, it was purely selfish, uh, the, the origins of, of our environmental uh, involvement was, was purely selfish at that time. Um, I just wanted to know what was safe to eat and to drink for my baby. And so did the Lears and so did the Fields. And so I called Mel Levine's office and I said, what what do I do about this? And he said to call this woman who founded Heal the Bay. You heard about Heal the Bay. And I'll never forget, it was a Thursday, and she said, we're having our first annual meeting on Saturday. Why don't you come? And this was, at that time, a real mom-and-pop kind of organization run out of the 
back seat of her car and the trunk of her car, and she had a handful of people working with her. And I went to this presentation and heard just how dirty the Santa Monica Bay was, where I was eating fish every day from. And I ended up having, I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was the first entertainment-oriented environmental fundraiser. And we raised $50,000. This was back in 1987. And they hired their first staff scientist who was still with them. I came out of the School of Public Health at UCLA. And they went on to do great things in the Santa Monica Bay. And we ended up bringing in, again, selfishly, uh, different people to tell us what was safe. And we were learning a lot. And really because of our husband's access to people, we were getting fantastic advice and we said, you know, we, we can't sit with this. This information is just too important. And how can, we, how can we get this information out to the public? And this is when Emma and Echo were, were born. We saw a news clip. There was some agency, it's been so long now, I can't remember the name of it, that tracked events on television and how it affected the public. For example, they said, when Henry Winkler was the Fonz, as an incidental to a, to a storyline, it wasn't even the main point, he went out and got a library card. And this agency charted tens of thousands of people went out the next day and got library cards because he sanctioned it. And the same thing happened with Tom Selleck on his show. He went into a bar, and instead of ordering alcohol, he either drank milk or a Coke, I can't remember which, and it affected, it made it okay to go in and not, and not drink alcohol. So we thought if we could just convince Hope on 30-something to, be, uh, to, to use a cloth diaper, uh, maybe we'd get somewhere. So Emma was born, and we had two advisory boards. One were all the larger environmental groups out of D.C. and New York and a lot of the local groups. And the other were the studio heads, the network heads, the Redfords and Streisands helped us of the day. And we wanted to incorporate environmental themes into music, mostly television and film and, and music. And that is what happened. And we did find that humor, humor works best. Um, but the, it takes many, many different um, avenues to educate a public. And at the time, only 5% of the population in the United States knew that there were environmental issues. 5%. And, of course, it's hard to imagine that now. And when I, I don't know about you, Gary, but when I hear what the studios are doing, we have come a really long way. It's a very, as dismal as it all seems right now, it's actually a really exciting time, I think, uh, to be here. You all are going to be, to, to, knowing that you're sitting here right now, 
you're going to be doing things that are of monumental importance um, to help save this planet. Some might say we're falling off a cliff. I've heard that already. And hopefully we're not. But um, these, these folks will explain more about what Emma's doing now. Um, but I just want to say to you, thank you for being here and thank you for what you're going to do. Anybody can do anything. Thank you. So, Debbie, would you and Hart like to talk about some of the specific strategies uh, that you've adopted to be able to uh, educate Hollywood and Hollywood's audiences about environmental issues? Is this on? Yes, it is. Um, Cindy gave you this great um, overview of, of why we came to be. The practical ca- uh, um, application of what we do is... What we really do is we try, to, we try to bring into your homes through television and feature films and music uh, and through the stories that they tell how to actually live a green life. I mean, I think when, when hearing the studios, it's so gratifying to see the subtle competition, which is so incredibly wonderful, makes my heart warm that everybody wants to be the best at this. Because I think that um, what we've learned is that really... The entertainment industry is kind of a a trend spotter and a trend setter. And I think that you all agree you kind of look for fashion cues and hairstyles and, you know, all kinds of things that you do, um, you've seen in television and magazines and feature films. And so what we do is we utilize that media to get the, the information and the messages inside sort of everybody's home. What we do is I actually pitch storylines to television producers all year. So, like, when you see a television show and you see um, an argument about farmed salmon or wild salmon, how many of you have seen that on television? couple? Or you don't watch enough television out there. Um, or when you see recycling bins or when you see any kind of storyline that, that's going on on TV um, – the reason that it's there is because the people who are creating the shows care enough to try to get these messages out. We also work very carefully with celebrities to role model behaviors. Um, our mission has evolved a lot since 1989, which is wonderful, where it was, just, it was mostly about bringing the messages into the scripts. We've now moved out into lifestyle also. We've, we worked with a lot of the celebrities trying to have them buy hybrid cars, for instance, having them bring canvas bags with them when they go to the market. How many of you bring canvas bags instead of using paper and plastic? Oh, my God, we've been so successful. That's fantastic because I think that, you know, when you see that in a magazine, when you see a celebrity carrying a canvas bag in People magazine, coming out of a hybrid car, it registers to you that maybe this is something that's a cool thing to do. And we've really worked closely with young Hollywood to try to get the celebrities that the paparazzi seem to love um, to adapt these really positive behaviors. There's so many questionable behaviors that you see in celebrities these days. Is that a really tactful way of saying it? Um, That the positive behaviors, which a lot of them really do, you know, live like, um, are just as important to be shot by the paparazzi because it's, it's also news. Um, what we've done is we've now been able to take a, a look at the behind-the-scenes like the studios have. 
Um, in 2004, we put together a committee to try to create what we call the Emma Green Seal. Like the uh, U.S. Green Building Council has the lead standard for building green, what we tried to work out was some kind of criteria for the actual productions and the, the production offices to be green as well. We realized if we were doing something within the content, we could also go behind the scenes. And in 2004, we needed to be gentle about suggestions. People still were not recycling on set. People were messengering stacks of scripts everywhere in town, so they were using the gas, they were wasting paper. Um, there were a lot of practices that were going on that we had our wonderful studio people fighting to, to make changes, but it wasn't as widespread as it is right now. And I think the last couple of years, uh, there's been a giant shift in consciousness. And it's made our job both harder and easier because we're so, we're so anxious to tackle as much as we can. Um, but what, what we really have found is that we have tremendous receptiveness from the, from the studios, whereas before... We, we needed to allow, you know, a lot of the old practices to stay, to stay in place because the change needed to be looked at from a budgetary point of view as well. Now I think we can get a little stricter. What we're doing right now is we're trying to put together a, some kind of a standard that hopefully all the studios will work with us, I'm assuming that they will, to, to get the Emma Green seal as something that when you see a film on the credits, on the one sheets, and on the ads, you'll see the Emma Green Seal, and you'll know that, that this production has adhered to a certain standard. And, in fact, Hart will tell you about his film, but his film that's coming out in March will be the first film to actually have the Emma Green Seal everywhere on the credits, on the one sheets. Everywhere that you see the, the ads for the film will have that Emma Green Seal. And... <laughs> yay! <laughs> Our goal is really to, because we're very lucky to have a board that has most of the studios on, on sitting on the board, we're hoping to, by the end of the year, have many of the studios incorporate the Emma Green Seal on their productions. Um, and like the LEEDS certification, there will be levels as well, because I, one thing that, that is really important to our organization is that we, everything is, is in a positive point of view. We don't yell at people. We don't say, you know, don't get mad at you for what you're not doing. What we do do is applaud you for what you are doing. Because I think that, you know, if you kind of look at the scale of 1 to 10, and, and you know, before no one was really thinking about anything, like Cindy said, and we've been able to move people through positive reinforcement up that scale from a 3 to a 5 to a 7, how great. Why would we yell at them for the last few things that they're not doing? So I think that having that point of view and that tolerance has helped us in a lot of different doors. The, the other area that we, that we work on is we're really business friendly. And we try to work with corporations because, face it, you buy stuff every day. You know, every day you wake up and you make a choice. And you can make choices every day to live a more sustainable life. You could go to the market and you can look at the ingredients and reach for the organic products. You can, when, when you're ready for a new car, you could really evaluate what hybrids are out there. Um, there's choices that you make every day. When you buy your stationery and your paper for your fax machine and your copy machine, 
Do you look at the recycled content? So these are choices, and you could feel really good about yourself. Just like, you know, when you go to the market, if you say, you know, when they ask you paper or plastic, and you say no, and you dump your canvas bags on, on the checkout counter, you'll feel really proud of yourself. And we use Hollywood to reinforce these trends. And what we're seeing right now is that these trends are turning into a norm. And it's, we're sort of, you know, crossing our fingers here, thinking that, that we're at this tipping point where it's no longer something that's going to be this year's style, but it's now for you guys, it's going to be the way of life, the way, the way it always is. And we try to, just really briefly, because I don't want to take too much time, but we work with a lot of companies. We do things like we're embarking on a campaign for cell phone recycling. And we've done a lot with, as I said, hybrid cars and canvas bags. And we weave celebrity role modeling into that because it's the best way to get the information out into the public so that, that people notice it. Because people obviously notice what celebrities do, but it does affect change. And it can be really, really... It, it can jumpstart a concept. Like Gary was saying, it took celebrities to jumpstart something that all these wonderful people were doing for years quietly. So um, we, uh, we really, really appreciate, you know, all you guys trying to be conscious as filmmakers sitting here right now. So Hart, as the filmmaker, go. He's on. Um, one of the great things about being a director is choreographing all this energy. And when you're in pre-production and you're sitting in these um, staff meetings, you're basically setting a, a tone and an agenda as to how you, want to, the, how you want the machine to operate. So I've directed films, studio films, and I just made this little independent film. And whether, whether you're working for a big bureaucracy or you're basically working for yourself and you've been given a, a chunk of money to play God with. Um, you've got a, a group of people that want to please you so that you can realize your vision and in turn they get to realize they're part of that vision. Um, when we sit down, I really go through a process where I tell all the departments, look, we've got to be as environmentally conscientious as we can here. That means the caterer does not get to use paper or styrofoam. They must use dishware and dinner, whatever it's called, stem, what is it called? What is it called? Flat. Thank you. Flatware that, that has to be reused every day. It means, in, it, that means on set. Um, in the production office, it means that there are no disposable paper cups uh, or coffee cups. It means when they make a run to Starbucks, everybody has a ceramic cup, has to have their name on it, and they have to reuse it. Um, on the set, um, it means that actors who get their daily pages must have a legitimate reason for needing these miniaturized version of the script and the pages you're going to shoot every day because everybody has a, a script to begin with and what's wrong with using that? I mean, I was an actor for a very long time and I never used those, those mini scripts because my script pages from my, my own script have all my notes on them anyway. Um, on this last picture, we shot in the most toxic town in America. It's called Trona. It's um, northeast of Mojave and I set the story there because it was one of the worst places I'd ever seen and I wanted to, to 
make a story that had a sort of environmental message behind it about a common man trying to do for himself, family, and community. And it's essentially a romantic fable. Um, but I had found this town, and I couldn't get over what I was seeing. I'd seen p- third-world poverty. I'd seen poverty in the Deep South. And I'd seen environmental degradation, but I'd never seen it in, in such a place that was so close to the Mecca that is Los Angeles. And it felt like I was a world away. Um, we made a deal with Toyota that was good enough to give us a Prius and a Highlander hybrid for run of picture to use as, as transportation vehicles. And we also put those uh, cars in the movie as hero, what are called hero cars. So Danny DeVito drove one of them, and his wife drove one of them in the movie. And when they were not, being, when they were not shot on screen, we were using them for literally running back and forth, picking up actors, carpooling, and whatnot. So that when we, when, I know I'm jumping around here, but when Debbie and I sort of sat around and, and, and brainstormed this green seal, we thought, well, we have to hit a certain amount of tar, a, a certain um, a series of, of, of benchmarks to create a green seal that would hopefully standardize um, behavior and production. Um, on a small film like this, carbon neutrality, car- buying carbon offsets is, is very prohibitive because it may run in the neighborhood of ten dollars to $100,000. So when you're making a movie at a budget level of just under a million bucks, it's impossible. And yet, we, wanted, we the organization, wanted to encourage the industry to do the right thing. So as this hopefully takes off and as we, we you know, standardize behavior in the business, we can actually find economically feasible ways for everybody to adhere to certain practices so that, as, as, as Debbie said, when the public goes to see a movie and they see that it's got the Emma seal of approval, they get... That, that the production did everything they could to act responsibly. Um, I did a movie for Sony about 10 years ago, and I, I think I did a very good job in choreographing the departments and telling them we would not use um, a rainforest mahogany that's been the standard for building sets since the early 1950s. It's, it's Indonesian hardwood. It's beautiful. It's mahogany. comes from 500-year-old trees. They rip it down willy-nilly. They ship it over here. It's used once, and it goes straight for the landfill. When Debbie and I joined up uh, in 2000, um, and Debbie ran, was, was hired to run Emma, I said, the very first thing we need to do is get the movie industry to stop using this stuff, because by all accounts these forests will be gone by the end of the decade. I got 25 director friends of mine, A-list directors, to sign on, agreeing not to use this stuff in favor of viable alternatives. Um, this movie that I directed for Sony, we used a recycled, recyclable product that um, the art department was reluctant to use, but I said, you don't have a choice. You're not using Luon. I'm sorry. And... You know, the only thing they did was throttle back on their nail guns. It was paintable, plasterable, malleable, like, and had all the properties 
of, of the mahogany. Um, but it's very difficult because your art department, we had a, we had a breakfast at Disney in 2000, uh, and we tried to e- express the dire need for the industry to take the lead, as, as the movie industry has always done. We've always been at the forefront of social change to say to them, guys, we're destroying a habitat. You're not going to be able to show your grandchild what an orangutan looks like in 10 years because of your kind of behavior. We need to change these methods, the way people think. And the art department said, as long as it's available, we're going to use it. Well, we're 80% through the decade, and the business still uses this stuff. Gary and I, a year ago, sort of brainstormed and thought, well, maybe we can create our own alternative out of bamboo. We're still trying to figure it out, but the time, you know, the clock is running. And, you know, it's just... Debbie and I were doing an interview this afternoon. We were talking to a couple of people from the local press here. And the issue is, is that, you know, people want to look like they're doing the right thing. People want to think, they want everyone to think that they're acting responsibly, but the real issue is, is that nobody really wants to be accountable. You know, everybody wants that luxury car, even though it's contributing to the demise of the planet. Um, You know, people don't want to think that they are necessarily part of the problem. So, you know, it's great that there's a filmmaking department here and there's all these students here, and you guys, by virtue of the fact that you will make films and television projects which will reach a huge amount of people, have an opportunity here, unlike people, students from other departments who may make contributions to society in equally wonderful ways but different ways. So you guys really have an opportunity to help all of us do what we're doing. Make sense? So do it. Thank you. Thank you. The Environmental Media Association. Now I'd like to uh, finish the panelists' remarks for right now because we want to get to your questions. Uh, But uh, I think this works nicely to come back to the state perspective, statewide perspective here, and hear from Amy Lemish from the California Film Commission. I'll keep it brief. Um, Just a... 30-second snippet of what we do at the California Film Commission. We are essentially an economic development tool for the state to create a business-friendly environment for uh, film, television, commercial production. So my office offers a variety of services like uh, free permits for filming on state property. Um, we have an extensive online location library. We help with location searches. We're also um, a liaison for any kind of government entity, whether it's a city or a county or federal, and certainly with state entities cutting through red tape and helping productions get get what they need, whether it's uh, they want access to shoot in a prison or um, a freeway or anything like that, or they might have hit a wall when they're dealing with a particular city or and will come in and intervene and try and turn a no into a yes. That's what we're constantly doing. 
And, but the other thing we do is we're sort of like this clearinghouse of information on anything filming related. I guess because it's the California Film Commission and we're the center of the entertainment industry. So, you know, how do I um, how do I get an agent? Or what are the child labor laws? Or what are the immigration regulations? I need to bring my DP in from the Czech Republic. Like just anything um, film remotely film-related. And what I realized about a year ago was that we were missing a vital component of this, where this information source, and we're constantly trying to improve that. So I created this thing that we call the Green Resource Guide, which is really just intended to be a tool. I came at it from the um, perspective that the productions want to do the right thing. They're already there. They already know that they want to have recycling in the office, and they want to get the right... uh, post-consumer content materials and all that, but they don't have the time. I'm a production coordinator. I only have three days to set up my office. I don't have time to make a million phone calls. So we really just organized it in a way that would work for an active production. So they could find a biodiesel generator company or they could find a company that's going to come and do uh, recycling, whether it's remotely on the set or in the office and that kind of thing, and just as a very practical nuts and bolts tool. So... um, in, and, and for the studio movies and TV shows, it's a lot easier because they have these great resources and these departments that help them along. For the independents, it's a little harder. And um, if you don't have you know, hard as your director, you might need a little more help. So that was really where, we, um, the, the, where the concept came from. And in researching it, what's been very interesting to me is it really does come from the top. The, the people, whether it's the producer or the production manager or the director and their commitment, it makes all the difference. Um, this one line producer I talked to said, I mean, it was amazing what she was trying to do on her, and it was a low-budget movie, but she said, you know, yeah, it was really hard on the set because everybody's so used to their old ways, but when the crew saw her digging through the trash every day and pulling out cans and bottles and putting them in the proper bins, they really started to come along. And um, it... Every step of the way, it, it seems to come from the top. And I, I do just want to say one thing. I hope we get to this, that um, another part of the, the, the top is um, the above-the-line talent. Does everybody know what I mean by above-the-line? You know, your actors and producers and directors. I think maybe we need to do a little work there because we can do, if you're the crew and you're the production manager, when I was a line producer, yeah, I can have recycling bins and I can double-side print my scripts and all that, but if one of my star talent needs a particularly enormous star trailer and that has to be pulled by an enormous truck, it, you know, I don't have any power over that. i got to give that talent what they want. So it gets, there's more to be done, but, but I, I'm seeing a lot happening. Um, one other example, there was a show... Um, one one of the other studios told me an example. They had done research for an upcoming movie that they're about to go in production on, and they had figured out that the on a normal big budget movie, just in script reproduction for the course of that movie, it was eight hundred thousand sheets of paper. And they had figured out a plan moving forward for this particular project that they were reducing that down to two hundred thousand sheets of paper. But I mean, it still sounds like a lot, but it's an amazing. I mean, that somebody even went to the trouble to figure that out is kind of amazing. Um, uh, anyway, we'll, we'll get into more. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, the, the panel last year uh, got 
people wondering, well, how green is the Santa Barbara International Film Festival? How green is the Santa Barbara Film Commission? You know, so when these ideas get out there, you know, people really do start have to start to have to think institutionally about, you know, how are we going to change our institutions to be able to uh, be more environmentally friendly. We have a two-hour window of the most formidable expertise here that you could imagine. So let's take advantage of uh, our panelists being here by continuing to learn from them through questions. Uh, I had a question about the carbon footprint of productions. If you could, any of you, kind of break down where is the most use of energy and resources? Like, what are the highest areas? And for different size productions, if you could kind of give an idea about that. Based on my experience, uh, electrical consumption and the, the burning of uh, fossil fuels. So we have lots of generators, and we draw a lot of electricity to light and power all the equipment that we use in order to, um, to make the, the film or the television show. Depending on a, a lot of the different, uh, if it's a television show, you may just be on one stage and you have a set, you know, like a, a sitcom, you're always going into the same stage, you're always using the same lights. When you get to the features and you have different sets and you're using um, interior stages to shoot exterior shots, you know, you, you got to get the lights really bright to simulate the outside. So you're bringing a lot more lights and you're using a lot more electricity. And, you know, and then you, there's plenty of people who then will say, well, what about the um, private jets? You know, that's what every, you, all the time we hear, we, if only we can get people to stop using the private jets. From the studio perspective, we looked at our carbon footprint from soup to nuts and 5% of our overall footprint was uh, corporate travel on private jets. So it isn't as large. The majority for us is the electrical consumption. Anybody else? I think you covered it. I, I would just add that one of the areas that really hasn't changed very much is set lighting, as John said. Um, and these lights are really the technology has not evolved. The bulbs have very short lives. Um, the lamps get incredibly hot, and then when the bulbs die, they're actually hazardous waste. So this is one area that we are really constantly talking to set lighting technicians to see what's new. There's actually a very, very uh, recent evolution, um, a new technology that uses LED lights, and it's, it's quite amazing. Um, we haven't seen it. I, I've heard that there's a film in the U.K. that's using it. I think it's the James Bond movie. That would be our film, by the way. Yes, <laughs> James Bond. You are competitive. My goodness. Just teasing you. But, I mean, when we do things like change the light bulbs and the catwalks and the stages, all those things are nice, but when you bring in the set lighting, that's where the energy shoots up. And the LEDs, from what we've been told, are 75% um, more efficient and put off 75% less heat. But I think they're uh, you know, 750 times the price of the, the other lights. So. I just have to plug UC Santa Barbara, where the pioneering research on LEDs is going on. Good. 
is being developed is being developed here. Just one one last thing, since we are our mission is perception and changing habits through perception. We do try to work with um, agencies and management companies to talk to their actors and put in the contracts that they don't want to use the private jets because I think that in turn. Yeah, because they all would, as Hartwood said. But I think that, you know, we can make people quite comfortable in first class on commercial airlines. And I think that that, again, it's the role modeling that I think is really important in terms of the general public's awareness. Question. Yes, I'd like to comment on the film festival again. Uh, I noticed that this year there have been some inroads into being a little more energy conserving. I'm wondering if the Carsey Wolf people at the university could help them become more energy efficient. But I also wonder um, what other film festivals have done to um, reduce their carbon footprint and become more energy conserving. I know it's hard because, like, transportation, people want to ride in jets, they want to ride their own cars. It must be very difficult. I I think it would be uh, a, a great idea to put together a task force of people from the universities and other academic institutions in Santa Barbara uh, with people who are uh, working on film festivals, you know, to just to try to understand, first of all, you know, there must be people out there who are already uh, trying to develop uh, a green, uh, green practices in film festivals. So just first try to find out what we could learn from others who are already doing it. And this is a project that could involve so many of the environmental organizations in this city. Be a great idea. You want to head it up? <laughs> Hi. Um, we have two questions. One, um, as students, which we both are, on a more individually based level, what can a student do to, other than recycling, what can a student do to? make themselves greener and and then secondly um what does schools what can schools do to make themselves more green and more environmentally friendly in general okay wow big question um students well that's a biggie um and you've it's we've mentioned here using canvas bags uh, watch what you do with your switches uh in your electricity use at home. Um, if you can get a hybrid car, great. If you can ride a bike, even better. I mean, there's a lot of different things you can do. It's just like, it's, it's a lot Shower of Shower together. Uh, the what? The what? Shower together. Oh, that works too. And um, universities. Um, th- that's a very interesting question too because it's, they're like, again, like studios, like little cities. Uh, we've done... Uh, we worked at UCLA uh, quite a bit on over 15 years to work on that, reducing that campus's environmental footprint, starting with recycling and everything else. UCSB, uh, CEC here in, in the city of Santa Barbara, Community Environmental Council, work with UCSB. So there's been a lot of work on the university. There's a lot to do still. Uh, we still have the pushback from, well, it costs more money to do this. Well, a lot of that costs more money is nonsense. In fact, it costs less money, and you create more jobs when you start doing the right things on the environment. And it's, you could do it uh, in major corporations and, and universities and studios as well. Can I add on, something? On, 
the UC Santa Barbara campus, there's uh, uh, the Carbon Free by 33 project. There's big uh, student and academic senate sustainability projects. So, uh, it, you know, it's pretty easy to find out about these things, and it's, it's gratifying to see. I believe at City College, there's also uh, quite a bit going on uh, with students organizing around this issue. I'd like to add something. As, as students and as individuals, I think it's really important to uh, watch where you spend your money as well. Try to use your dollars to vote, so to speak, for better products. Um, also, as students, you can talk to your teachers, talk to the administrators about having more classes that integrate sustainability. I mean, really, nature is the, the bed the bedrock of our economic system. So there are en environmental implications, whether you study history or mathematics or social science or language or film, whatever it is. Um, but lastly, I think we forget to talk about this. The most important thing is to spend a little bit of time in nature. Have some contact directly in nature. We forget, we, we you know look at the lists of what to do and the canvas bags and the light bulbs and turn off the water while you're brushing your teeth. The only way to truly develop an environmental ethic is to be in nature and to observe and to respect and to be awed by it. And all of those decisions will come to you a lot easier because you know what you're working towards. The one, yeah, that's, I, and I want to throw in one other thing as well. Use less. I mean, how much do we all need? I stopped taking the, I'm not trying to be self-serving here, but I stopped taking the newspaper 10 years ago, and I, I'm a devotee of the sports section every morning because I read that, okay, as Gary said earlier, 60% of the Los Angeles Times is recycled newsprint. 40% of the New York Times is recycled. Well, we still cut down a half a million trees a week in this country to make newsprint, which means 40% of the paper of the LA Times is coming from a, a virgin source. Well, I, when I found that out, I thought, you know what? I'll find somebody at the gym to scrounge the thing from, or I'll read it online, and that's what I do. I mean, there are ways to get creative don't feel like you're necessarily diminishing the quality of your life. I mean, I don't feel that I go without by virtue of the fact that I try to use less. It makes sense? The, the aboriginals of Australia have this wonderful way of living, which is it's a non-materialistic, nomadic culture. But they want to feel that when they've died, they have left no imprint on the planet whatsoever. They just want to kind of disappear with the wind. And it's kind of a beautiful thing. And, you know, for all of us, it's all about more is better and more is never enough, so we got to accumulate more, and we're looking for that next hit, you know, to get that charge, that infatuation that wears off after a day or a week or a month, so we need the next thing. So the more we can kind of all recognize that and the less we need, you know, Maybe it won't help the economy necessarily, but it'll be better for all of us. You know, I had one more, one more thing, because you're all students, and you're all thinking about different careers, whether it's in the entertainment industry or whatever it is that your passion is. 
think about a sustainable approach or some kind of an environmental bent to what you want to do. And like Shelley was talking about in terms of business and purchasing, when you're thinking about what it is that you want to do, how can you, in a sense, green, make more green whatever that passion is and bring your own desires to live that way into the business that you choose? Thank you for all com coming. Um, how do I persuade my parents to, when they're considering purchasing a hybrid, um, as opposed to like a sports car? Um, and my mom says that like it's just hard to go to to use that extra ten thousand dollars. So I'm just wondering how I should persuade my parents. Ask her how much she loves you. Okay. <laughs> really? Exactly. I have gotten so many of my friends inspired with children who say, "Oh, I'm going to get a." you know, whatever it is. And I say, really? How much do you love your kid? What are you talking about? Well, you are necessarily decreasing the quality of life by doing that rather than the right thing. And as I said, after a few months, it's just a hunk of metal, right? So that charge is going to go away and you're going to be left with higher gas bills. I mean, think about if if you got your parents to buy an energy-efficient vehicle, they might save between 50 and 100 bucks a month that could go towards your college education or investing in green businesses or whatever it is. So that's a win-win for everybody, especially for you and hopefully your offspring. Make sense? Yeah, I, thank you. Practically, if they're, when you buy a car, assuming that you're making payments on the car, the payments if they're a touch more for each month, because you're not talking about that big of a difference, the savings in the gas, because you really do get 45 miles to the gallon in, in like a Prius or something. And that's huge now. Gas is so expensive that they'll make that the extra money on the payments. This is the way you sell them also, is that with the gas bill every month. It's, really, it's a real savings that they'll see. And it's cool. It's, it's not so cool, cool to drive so around in a big cool. SUV. And you can, you can tell, uh, tell your parents everybody will like them. Okay. <laughs> Is there a question over here? Yeah, just a real quick one. Um, Gary touched on it early on about jobs being created through uh, the recycling of, of different products. And I just wondered if some of the studio people could talk a little bit about some of the jobs that the studios have actually created for the, maybe the students that aren't necessarily coming directly to the film industry. Maybe they have some other green collar ideas. I'll just give you a personal example. My background is science and sustainability and looking at the uh, life cycle of a product or looking at our business from, you know, the top down. Um, that's not what I know. You know, there are people who have MBAs who understand how a business works, who have an interest in the environmental sciences and the environment itself, who <clears throat> know way more about this than I do. And this is new. So my staff is all, you know, scientists who are trying to understand and learn this, and we're pulling in some consultants, and, and they're all young. You know, this is, it's, it's new. Um, it's a new way of looking at what we're doing, and it's part of the business now. And, and using the, um, the environmental impact as, as part of the decision-making process is, is new. You know, it used to be how much is it going to cost, 
you know, where are you going to, um, where, where is it going to be used, whatever the case may be, but never environmental. Is it safe to use? Now environmental is being considered as well, and, and the students who are out there now learning all this are going to step into this field. I mean, you can see it now. <clears throat> the, you go online and look for jobs, and it's sustainability. And so I, that's at least what I'm seeing lately. Well, I'll tell you that directly in our department, when I started, it was just me. And um, over the last 15 years, we've grown. Now we are a department of 11. Seven people are uh, laborers. It's a recycling crew. And there's a manager, an an energy efficiency specialist, and an office manager. Um, But in general, I, I would say where the green jobs are really exploding are in the renewable energy field. And there's a whole movement now, uh, particularly, it sort of sprung up in Oakland, um, where certain organizations are training youth that otherwise didn't really know what field to go into to learn how to install solar, to do energy efficiency audits. All of these new jobs that didn't even exist before um, so that, that idea of green-collar jobs is huge right now in terms of boosting the economy. And like, like Hart said, you know, I don't know how good it is for the economy. I actually think it is good. You're just shifting, you know, from, you know, pollution either from landfill jobs or, or uh, you know, coal mining. You're shifting those jobs to other, other areas. Not only in the, in the entertainment industry, but... Um if you look at the, in the forest industry, so every one job in the forestry industry, there's 17 jobs in the recycling industry. It's huge, the difference. Um, AB32, the new greenhouse gas, we've got approximately 250 new positions opened up in the state just to make that whole thing happen. So it's exploding everywhere. And renewables is another one. It's the, the initiative for environmental employment today and tomorrow is going to be fabulous. And it's going to be very rewarding. Because you feel good about it. You go home and you sleep well. It's great. I'd like to ask a question. All of you are in, seem to be in great harmony uh, about what the problems are, what some of the possible solutions are. You're all pursuing uh, many paths toward greening the industry. Uh, my question is, and this is the only teeny bit of dissension perhaps that came up here on the panel, uh, There are now the guidelines, the uh, EMA Gold Seal, the EMA Gold Seal, and also uh, the California Film Commission guidelines that you produced, Amy. Uh, But I'm just wondering, would there be any advantage uh, to having an industry-wide third-party standard uh, that studios and production companies would, uh, could certify to, you know, along the lines of uh, the U.S. Green Building? I would love uh, to address that. Yeah, we're actually trying to do that, and we're working with a green seal out of uh, uh, D.C., and we're trying to come up, as we speak, of that third party. As, an, as a nonprofit, that's kind of who we are. We have no agenda other than just getting it done correctly, hopefully. So with the support of, of the studios and, you know, the state, and just that's, that's what we're trying to do right now. And as I said before, I think the time is right. We're finally ready for everybody to hear it. Gary? Well, I, I, it's, guidelines are great, but standards and reaching those standards and having a third-party chime on you're doing the right thing 
is is the best way to go because you can't lie. And you got to do what you got to do. If you're going to save with something, you've got to be right on with it. So standards are, as Green Seal in Washington, D.C., we do this all the time uh, with products that you use every day. So if you want to get Green Seal certified products or you want to know that, that the science is real, you go to certifications, because, and especially certifications that the science is real. That's really important. And, and since Green Seal and Emma share Gary, we get the best... Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> the best of it. I'm so confused. <laughs> Shelly. I'm probably a little bit skeptical. Um, I mean, I have seen the U.S. Green Building Council's lead rating really succeed, but it's, first of all, it took an incredibly long time and a huge group of people to reach consensus on what those standards are. Um, to be met, and it's a very, very rigorous rating system. It's it requires third-party commissioning, and I mean, it's it's very, very involved and complicated to reach that standard. And when I think in my mind, how can we apply that sort of rigor and the science to filmmaking? I, I'm I'm not sure that there is really a good fit there, only because. The people in, in the film and television industry really live on creativity and freedom and not being held to certain goals. And it's about individuality and about, you know, I want to build this, you know, the Oval Office this way. And we say, well, wait a minute, the Oval Office is the Oval Office. Why can't you reuse this set from this movie to that movie, and they say, well, no, the art director says it's got to have my signature. And it's just such a different culture altogether that I'd love to be proven wrong, but I, I haven't really seen a lot of consensus uh, amongst productions. And the reality is that the studios don't control all of those productions. Oftentimes, we're just the facility that they rent, and we provide part of our environmental program is to pr provide that infrastructure where automatically they'll recycle on set, the wood is going to get diverted, everything that we can do as, as a facility to support that. But we can't really tell them, don't take as many airline trips and don't run your generator at this time and you know don't send out the scripts via courier. So I... Like I said, I'd love to be proven wrong, but I'm a little bit on the skeptical side. Well, let's end on that productive conflict and thank our panelists very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.